That's good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, grab them at this point in time and uh, turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. As we pick up on part five of our series called Heaven, All Things New. And uh, now we come to Revelation chapter 20 and 21, excuse me, and 22. And uh, we finally get to the part where God does make all things new. So chapter 21 of the book of Revelation and into chapter 22 is where we're going to be. As uh, you're heading there, let's uh, pray, and then we'll dive right into our sermon, part five, simply called Eternity. Eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's altogether inspired. It's altogether inerrant. It's altogether trustworthy. And it is our guide for life and for practice, for faith and for belief. And we're so very grateful that we can turn to it and that you, in particular, as we've been examining these last few weeks, that you have revealed much about what the future holds for those who have trusted personally in Jesus Christ and have been born again of the Spirit. We have an incredible hope. And in particular this morning, we anticipate hearing about the eternity that you have planned for us. It is a wonderful eternity. It is uh, an eternity that will be very familiar and yet very different. And most significantly, you will be with us. You will be among us. Your throne will be in the center of the New Jerusalem, and we will have free access. And as we'll see in a minute, we will see your face. What an incredible thing it will be to come face to face with the living God and to live with you for all eternity, for your glory and for our great joy. And so help us, we pray, as we look into your word to understand, to have a stirring of our hearts that would grow in anticipation and in hope of the day that you finally will make all things new. We thank you that you've begun it through faith in Christ, that you're making us into new creatures and you're changing us. And one day we'll have a resurrected body and we will live on a recreated earth with you. And then your work of salvation will be complete. We hunger for it. We long for it. And we ask that you would send your son quickly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people together said, amen, amen. I don't know if you remember, it's been uh, several years now since the turn of the millennium. But uh, some 14 years ago, there was a change, of course, in the millennium. And we moved from the uh, 1900s into the 2000s. And I'm sure you have memories of celebrating that millennium. I'm sure maybe you have memories uh, uh, of being concerned about everything going crazy with the Y2K bug, which, of course, didn't pan out. Uh, I have memories of celebrating that millennium as well. But I think uh, one of the things that uh, stood out was we uh, were watching, at least I remember catching news clips of celebrations around the world and different cities around the world celebrating this new millennium. And I'd like to show you a picture of uh, the celebration that was going on in Sydney, Australia. Of course, it began with a bang in Sydney, Australia. And I think that 
Sydney probably had one of, if not the best, celebrations of the new millennium. And of course, at the stroke of midnight on December 31st of 1999, came elaborate fireworks as they erupted over beautiful Sydney Harbor. And of course, the natural beauty and the reflection over the harbor just made for a spectacular sight. One of the things that stood out to me that I was reminded of this week was suspended from the giant arch on the bridge amidst amidst exploding rockets and, of course, a, a deluge of light was one word. And you see it there behind me. What was that word? Eternity. Eternity. Isn't that interesting? At the turn of the millennium, somebody, somewhere, who designed this fireworks show, thought that it was appropriate to hang the word eternity as we moved from one millennium into the next. Well, regardless of the intent of that designer, I think it's interesting because they conveyed what is indeed a biblical truth found in Revelation 20 and 21. And that truth is this, is that at the end of a millennium, At the end of a millennium, Christ's thousand-year rule on the earth, which we looked at last Sunday, at the end of that millennium, it will herald in the start of eternity, just like on the bridge. And eternity is the subject for this morning. So I hope you're in the Bible with me in Revelation 21 and 22, because that is the subject of a great deal, all of chapter 21 and most of chapter 22. We get the end of this marvelous revelation of things to come from the Apostle John, and here we get a focus on our eternity. So if you want to know what eternity will be like if you are a believer in Christ, if you want to know what you will be doing, what you will be seeing, what you will be participating in, then I would submit to you that there's no better place to turn than Revelation 21 and 22. If you're taking notes, what I'd like for you to do is do this. Write down five five words. They're all C words. That's what we do as pastors. The first one is cremation. Because starting in verse 1 of chapter 21, we're going to see the cremation of the present, the current, heaven and earth. Secondly, I want you to jot down the word creation. Because following the cremation of the old earth will be a creation of what the Bible says is a new heaven and a new earth, verses 1 and 2. Third, write down the word conditions. Because what John reveals to us in verses 3 through 5 is a a bit of a snapshot of the conditions of the new heaven and the new earth. The conditions that we will get to enjoy throughout all eternity if we are believers in Christ. And number four, write down the word citizens. Because John then explains in verses 6 through 8, who's going to be there? This should be of the utmost significance and concern for us. Who is going to be in eternity, in this new heaven and earth? Well, John's going to tell us in verses 6 through 8. And then write down the word capital. Capital, that is C-A-P-I-T-O-L, as in the capital city. Because what John spends most of his time on in this vision, chapter 21, verse 9, running all the way through chapter 22 through uh, verse 5, is we see the capital city of this newly created heaven and earth. And it's going to blow your mind. So let's begin with number one. We see the cremation of the present heaven and earth, and we see it referenced in verse 1 of chapter 21. Let's read that together. John says this, 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, notice that, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And so John begins to describe the transition into eternity. And what he describes is, first of all, a new heaven and a new earth that he sees. But first of all, something has to happen. Something has to happen to the first heaven and the first earth. Now, when we see the word heaven there, don't think like heaven as in where God lives. Think like uh, the sky and the sun and the moon, as in Genesis 1. So when the Bible describes your heaven and earth, it's, it's describing the place where we live. And so the first one is coming, but something has to be done to, uh, excuse me, the second one is coming, but something has to be done with the first one. And John simply says in uh, a short summary fashion that the first heaven and the first earth passed away. It simply passed away. Now we see from other scriptures a little bit about how God is going to do this. How is God going to make this earth, this little chunk of land that we live on here in Illinois, and the whole rest of the world, how is God going to make that pass away? Well, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, you don't have to turn there, but it says this. I'd like to read it to you. Second Peter 3.10 reads this way. Peter describes to us a little bit about how that's going to happen. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And so what we know from the scriptures is that God will torch the present earth and the present heaven. So what we're living on will be toast. God will do away with it. It will be cremated. Now, there's some debate, will God destroy absolutely everything and then just recreate as he did out of nothing? Or will he kind of take what's left over, right? Will he take the ashes and resurrect the new earth? And the answer is, I don't know. I think most likely God will torch it completely and recreate. But we do not know, and nor does it matter, because God's going to burn it, and he's going to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. So from the cremation of the old, John then quickly moves to the creation of of the new. And we see it in verse 1 and 2. Let's read it again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And so the old earth is gone, it's passed away. And John describes in simple kind of summary terms uh, this new creation, this new place for us to live as Christians forever and ever. This term that John uses, new, it means new in quality and superior to the old. So last week I described that as my family was away for the week, a couple weeks ago, that uh, I was able to thoroughly enjoy watching all three Lord of the Rings, right? One, two, three, uh, pretty much in a row, and uh, I enjoyed doing that. But when I was done, I thought, I still have time. What am I going to watch? You know, what am I going to do? So I went to uh, what's probably my second favorite trilogy. Any guesses? Star Wars. The original 
Star Wars, not the newly made stuff, the original Star Wars with Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Chewbacca, right? That's, that's my second go-to trilogy. So I started it. I started the first one and I may have finished it. I don't remember. But it was kind of interesting because I have uh, the ones that are new, like they're digitally remade. Have you seen those before? Uh, and so they have, it's like an upgrade. It's the same movie, but there are a few new scenes and the color is much better. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot crisper. It's digitally remade. Folks, the, the new earth that John describes here is not a re-edit. It's a remake. Krell, uh, Pastor Kenneth Krell, speaks on this, and I, I really like what he has to say about the new heaven and the new earth. In his words, he says it this way. He says, what I'm saying is this, we are not going to live in heaven forever. No, this is not a misprint, he says. The Bible teaches that we will be in heaven for an appointed time. Then we will rule with Christ on the earth. We talked about that last week. And finally, we will experience what he calls the eighth day of creation and live on a newly created earth. This is the home that God has prepared for us. And as if seeing this new earth were not enough, John also describes this heavenly city. He describes it as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven onto earth. He's going to describe that city in detail starting in verse 9 of chapter 21. But he just, he mentions it. He says it's beautifully adorned. Think about your wedding day. Men in particular, think about your wedding day. And as your bride walked down the aisle, uh, hopefully you were enthralled and amazed at her beauty. Uh, she had prepared herself for you for that moment. And John describes this city that's going to come down out of heaven. It's currently in heaven now, and it's going to come down out of heaven, and it's going to be beautifully adorned like a bride for her husband. And this new city is called the bride, and it's going to be Jesus' bride. And consequently, the church, which is also called the bride of Christ, will live in this city. And so what we have in verses 1 and 2, in particular in verse 2, with this holy city coming down from heaven, don't miss this, is the uniting of heaven and earth. We have the union of heaven and earth, of God's domain and of man's domain. I uh, heard a song. We were traveling just recently, and I uh, we were taking a, a gas break, right? And so we filled up the car and I was going in to buy some coffee or use the restroom or whatever. And I was just going in and there was a song that was playing on the radio and it caught my ear. And uh, without singing it, the words went something like this. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. You make heaven a place on earth. Now, I did some research because I wasn't too sure about that song. And apparently uh, it's written by a lady by the name of, do you know, Belinda Carlisle. And uh, it was in the late 80s, I believe. I was only six or seven then, so I didn't really remember it. But I was like, oh, this is kind of a catchy song, right? You know, heaven is a place on earth. And then I thought, that's exactly what John is describing here. It's all in your minds now, right? All of you, you're like, I'm singing it now. Okay, get it out of your minds. It's a bad 80s song. Get it out of your mind, okay? Um, but, but the point is that what, what she sings about is going to come true. Heaven will be a place on earth, is what John describes. So we've seen the cremation of the old. We've seen the creation of the new. As we move into verse 3, I want us to see the conditions. 
John just gives us a few phrases to kind of whet our appetite for what the conditions are going to be like in this new heaven and on this new earth. Let's read it together, verses 3 through 5. He describes it this way, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So there are a lot of things described here on the conditions of this newly created earth. But did you notice the repetition? What's the primary feature, right? What's the primary characteristic of this new heaven in this new earth? Three times it's God's personal presence among his people that distinguishes this new heaven in this new earth because three times this little phrase, God will be with men, God will be with men, God will be with them is emphasizing that God and his very presence will be with us and that will be the distinguishing feature of this newly created earth. And of course, with God's presence means the absence of certain things. And so did you catch the list of things that will be absent? There will be no more tears. Death itself will be done away with. That, my friends, is wonderful news. Mourning, emotional pain, crying, physical pain, it will all be done away with. Steve Lawson, in one of his books, has compiled, I think, an expanded list of what he calls no mores, right? The Bible talks here, there will be no more pain, no more dying, right? And so he's expanded this list, and I want to read it to you because he fleshes out what this means for us. Quote, he says, There will be no more funeral homes, no more hospitals, no more abortion clinics, no more divorce courts, no more brothels, no more bankruptcy courts, no more psychiatric wards, and no more treatment centers. There will be no more pornography, no more suicide, no more AIDS, no more cancer, no more rape, no more missing children, no more drug problems, no more drive-by shootings, no more racial tensions, and no more prejudice. He continues, there will be no more misunderstandings, no more injustice. No depression, no hurtful words, no gossip, no hurt feelings, no worry, no emptiness, no child abuse. There will be no more wars, no more financial worries, no more emotional heartaches, no more physical pain, no more spiritual flatness, no more relational divisions, no murders, and no casseroles. That's his words, not mine. There will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more separations. 
No more starvation or arguments or incidents or emergency departments. No more doctors, nurses, monitors, rust, perplexing questions, false teachers, financial shortages, hurricanes, bad habits, decay, locks. We will never need to confess sin. Never need to again apologize. Never need to straighten out a strained relationship. Never have to resist Satan again. Never have to resist temptation. Never. Wow, that's a wonderful fleshing out of what John describes. So, we've seen the cremation of the old, the creation of the new, a little bit of a foretaste of what it's going to be like in the conditions. John then moves on to describe the citizens of this new earth. Who's going to be there? This is where it hits home, folks. Your ears should perk up right now. Because he's going to describe the citizens of the new heaven and the new earth and the kind of lifestyle of the people who will not be in it because they're unbelieving and the kind of people who will be in it. And we find it in verses 6 through 8. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Here it goes. To the thirsty... Here's who will be in it. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious, your translation may say, who overcomes, will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But, so here's his description of those who will not be here. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So who will be there? Will you be there? The one who has tasted the living water that Jesus offers, who has personally drunk from his living, eternal Waters, which is a symbol of eternal life through faith in his death and in his resurrection for our sins. If you've personally trusted in Christ, and if you've overcome Satan and the world by our faith, as 1 John tells us, then you will be there. You will be a citizen of this kingdom, while unbelievers whose lives are characterized, at least in part, by the things listed here. It's an evidence of their unbelief. They will not be there. And so, friends, the most important thing that you will ever hear in this sermon this morning is this. Will you be there? Will you be a citizen of that country? In verse 27, we're going to read in a little bit, we see that those whose, quote, names are in the Lamb's book of life will enter. The Lamb's book of life is simply a book in heaven that is filled up with page after page after page after page after page of names of people who are genuinely born again, who have placed their faith in Jesus. And I want to know, friends, is that you? We're going to have a moment at the end of our service that if you are not sure, let's, let's make it sure. So we've seen the citizens. The vision concludes with a lengthy section, starting in verse 9 of chapter 21 and running all the way through verse 5 of chapter 22. And what John now is going to describe for us in depth is the capital city of this new earth. There's going to be one capital city of this new earth. There are capital cities, right, in every state and in every country. No more. One. There will be one 
capital city. It's called the New Jerusalem. And I want you to write down four things. As we take a look at this capital city, four things stand out to me, and then we'll, we'll work our way through them. Number one, we're going to see its descent. That is D-E-S-C-E-N-T. It's coming down. Secondly, we're going to see its dimensions. We're going to see it described in human-like detail. Number three, we're going to see its deficits. What's going to be missing from this city? And then number four, we're going to see, as I move ahead on my notes to find number four, we're going to see its distinctives. What will separate this city from the others? So first of all, let's see its descent, starting in verse 9 through 11. Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down, descending, right, out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So John begins by simply describing what he sees. This magnificent, bright, shining, radiant city is going to come down out of heaven. And its main feature, at least here, is the brilliant glory of God, which will radiate through the city. Because guess who's going to be there? God in all of his full glory and splendor, and it will radiate through the city, and it will shine and sparkle like a diamond reflects light. And John simply, I think, he tries to describe how beautiful this city is going to be. Next, he describes for us its dimensions. Verses 12 through 21, we get a very interesting description. What is this city going to look like? Now, it it matters whether you take this more literally or more figuratively, and certainly good Bible-fearing Christians do both. However, to me, it seems most natural to understand this as a literal description of a literal city, and we'll see why as we read through. Verse 12 through 21, we see the dimensions of this city. Verse 12, It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Verse 15. The angel who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be uh, 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using, notice, human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure what? Gold. As pure as glass, the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, ruby, the seventh, chrysolite, 
the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. Now the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Okay, so wow, that's quite some city, right? Let me try to flesh it out for you. The city is, as, is essentially a, a large cube. So think of a large cube, or it could be a pyramid. We don't know. It's most likely, I think, a large cube. Some, now catch this, 1,500 miles in length and in width and in height. So just think about that for a second. 1,500 miles. And the walls are roughly 215 feet thick. That's some thick walls, isn't it? So here's an image of what it might look like from, uh, from above. That's what it might look like if this is literal, and I see no reason to believe it's not. Now that's going to be a large city, is it not? That will certainly stand out. That is, I believe, going to be the capital of the new earth. Now moving on, the, uh, if you put this on the American map, which is the next image, it would take up about this much space. So take a look at that. That's about how much space it would take up. And if you look at it, that's just the ground level, right? That's like one level. And it goes up 1,500 miles. We can move on from that image. The inclusion of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles symbolize that this city is for all of the redeemed, for all time, right? Everybody who has ever followed God faithfully through faith and what he has provided on the cross, they will be a part. So we've seen its dimensions. Now I want us to notice its deficits. Its deficits. In verses 20 through, 22 through 27, we see a list of several things that will not be in this city. It's, it's deficits, but it's things that are gloriously missing. It's things that we would not want in a city that we are living in. 22 through 27, and then we'll list them off. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there are deficits in eternity, but they're good deficits. They're things that we don't want in our eternity. So let me just list them off. There will be no more temple. There will be no more temple like there was on earth before, in particular during the millennial kingdom. No more temple because God's presence there makes the whole city a virtual temple. No more sun, no more moon. Why is that? Because the glory of God will illuminate all. No more closed gates. In a time where we don't have gates, city walls, this is kind of foreign to us. But the Bible is emphasizing the fact that there will be no more closed gates because all of the threats are gone, right? You used to have 
city walls with gates. And at nighttime, what would you do? You close them. Because why? Bad people will come, right? And they will enter into it and kill you. But there is no more threat. The thick walls will forever be open for any follower of God who ever wants to come. Number four, there will be no more night because all darkness, symbolic and literal, has passed away. Number five, there will be no more evil. I think oftentimes, especially those of us who kind of live out in the country here, uh, we don't have a good taste in our mouth of, of city life, right? We go to the city when we have to. We drive to Chicago when we have to. We drive to Indy or wherever, pick your city, because, you know, we have to. And we get there, and if you're like me, you're like, the traffic is horrible, and I have to wait, and I'm really self-conscious because there are many, many, many more people here than ever were in my town, and I'm like, what are they going to do to me? And we're just kind of like, freaks us out, right? You know, we, we, we think of crime in city. We think of shootings. We think of all sorts of bad things, right? But in this city, there will be no crime. There will be no evil because there will be no evil doers, because unbelievers had, had, have been sent to hell forever. Number four, we've seen its descent, we've seen its dimensions and its deficits. Number four, I want us to see a few distinctives. What are some things that really stand out about this city? John closes his vision in verse one through five in chapter 22. We see some distinctives. Let's read that together. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more light. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So what are some distinctives here, right? I think six things that stand out. Number one, there's the river of life. We get this portrait of a a high mountain and God's throne room is there and flowing from that throne is what is called the river of life. Maybe it's supplying water for all of the earth or maybe it's just symbolic that eternal life comes from God. I don't know, but there's gonna be a glorious river there. Secondly, there's the tree of life. Does that sound familiar? You ever heard of that before? The tree of life? Where was that? In Genesis, right? Genesis 1 and 2. At the very beginning, there was a tree of life, and if you ate from it, it would perpetuate life forever. I see no reason to believe that this one will be any different. There's no more curse. This one is huge. This is huge because we live in a sin-cursed world. God will lift the curse that he put on human beings and all of creation at the fall. That means we will not have sinful natures. We will be in resurrected bodies. No more tendency to sin. No more inclination to sin ever. No more death, which is a result of the curse. No more thorns, no more thistles. There will be no more curse. God will have reversed the curse. Number four, his servants will serve him. That is, our work will be worship. Our work will be worship. Now, you may be thinking, oh man, I really have to go to work in eternity? Really? Listen, I I think Randy Alcorn sums it up best. He says, we will always be worshiping, quote, 
not because we are doing nothing but worshiping, but because we are worshiping God as we do everything else. And our work will be worship. It will be significant, not at all draining. It will be invigorating and joyful, whatever it is. Number five, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, a picture of intimacy and closeness. And number, the last one, number six, says they will reign forever and ever. So God's original intent at creating us is that he would glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on the earth through human representatives, through human beings who ruled over his creation. And once again, we will do that. We will reign forever and ever. So I'd like to close with, a, with an excerpt from a book. I'd highly recommend this book to you. It's Randy Alcorn's Heaven. It's simply entitled Heaven. And in that book, he describes and he quotes a scene from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Now, if you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, if you're a Narnia fan, get ready. Here it comes. It's going to be awesome. In his book, The Last Battle, Lewis, quoted here by Alcorn, says this, and I think it's a fitting picture of the new heaven and the new earth. So I'll, I'll read him. He says this, In the last battle, C.S. Lewis portrays the girl Lucy, the little girl, right? As she mourns the loss of Narnia, a great world created by Aslan, a beloved world that she assumed had been forever destroyed. Jewel, the unicorn, mourns too, calling his beloved Narnia, quote, the only world that I've ever known. Although Lucy and her family and friends are on the threshold of Aslan's country, the picture of the new heaven and the new earth, I believe, she still looks back at Narnia, and feels a profound loss. But as she gets deeper into Aslan's country, she notices something totally unexpected. And what happens next, Alcorn writes, I believe reflects the biblical revelation of the new earth. So here's C.S. Lewis. Those hills, said Lucy, the, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia as she looks in to the new Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence, why they're exactly alike. Look, there's Mount Pyre with his forked head and there's the pass into Arkenland and, and, and everything. And yet, they're not alike, said Lucy. They're, they're different. They have more colors on them and they look further away than I remembered and they're more, more, oh, I don't know, more like the real thing said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight, the eagle, spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up in the air, circled around and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. Edinsmer, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Car Parabell still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter, for Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and yet here we are. Yes, said Eustace, the cousin. And we saw it all destroyed, and the sun put out. And it's, it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that 
was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and it all, it's only a shadow, a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the deer creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it's different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as waking life is from a dream. And the narrator picks up. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right hoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this one. Friends, this new heaven and this new earth that we have seen today is our real country. If you're a believer in Christ, we belong there. This is the land that we have been looking for all of our lives. Let's pray.